timely new Netflix documentary titled Disclosure looks at the way that those depictions in films and TV have influenced not only how the public has perceived them, but also how they have felt about themselves. And I'm very pleased to welcome the film's director, Sam Fader, and two of his subjects, writer and actress Jen Richards and historian Susan Stryker, to our show now. Welcome. Uh, Susan, are you there? Yes, I'm here. And so while you're still waiting on Sam to get online, uh, I can say yes. Uh, Disclosure uh, premiered on Netflix on June 19th. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, available, gosh, I forget in how many, like hundreds, uh, more than 100 countries worldwide. And uh, the reception has been really positive. I should point out that you're a professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona, currently a visiting professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale. And you say in the film that trans issues are front and center in the culture wars. Really? Um. Well, I asked the question, you know, why is it that, that, you know, there's relatively few transgender people. I mean, it looks like maybe like about one and a half million people in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And why is it that such a small population gets such, um, you know, kind of, I would say like an undue share of attention? Why is it that people just lose their minds over the fact that trans people exist? You know, what, what is it? So, you know, I do think it's an interesting question historically why why such a relatively small population becomes um, such a, a, a cultural touchstone. In the film, Sam says that 80% of Americans don't know or think they know someone who's trans, so they, their only understanding of trans people comes from the media. Yeah, that's uh, the best information that we have. I think those statistics come from um, uh, GLAAD, which is a LGBTQ media uh, watchdog organization. And in their surveys, uh, they suggest that um, that's that's true. Like only 20% of the people in the U.S. claim that they personally know someone who is trans, which means for this hot-button issue in the culture wars, um, most of the information that most people in the U.S. have about trans people comes through media representation. So if you can change the way representation works, you can really help influence uh, this really important, and you know, in my opinion, really important civil rights issue. Were you joking when you said that as a child, Bugs Bunny was the only positive, positive representation of trans femininity that you saw? Uh, no, I wasn't joking at all. You know, like if you've um, if you've watched the film, um, you know, one of the things you'll I notice. Have. Okay, so one of the things that you'll notice is that you know while there is the steady stream of representation of mostly cross-dressed men um, acting silly while wearing mm-hmm. dresses and sort of representing, um, you know, what I would say, representing transness as something that is either sort of like ludicrous or sometimes scary and frightening, you know, like in Alfred Hitchcock's movie Psycho. There's a lot of representation of, you know, what you might call trans femininities, but there was nothing that said, you know, this is an okay or a powerful or, um, you know, um, um, uh, desirable way of being. And as I and uh, Lily Wachowski, who was also interviewed in the film, one of the directors of the Matrix franchise, it's like us being of a certain age now, being kids in the 60s, 
um, yeah, that was really true, that it's like I look forward to like catching those glimpses of Bugs Bunny in drag because, you know, even though Bugs was presented as a boy, uh, Bugs in drag was like not embarrassed, was not ashamed, uh, was desirable, was powerful, and there was something that really spoke to me as a little kid seeing Bugs Bunny um, doing Carmen Miranda or being in a Wagner opera. So, yeah, that's absolutely true. Although one of the more sympathetic moments is in Some Like It Hot, uh, the last line by Joey Brown in the movie. Mm-hmm. When, yeah. he, when, he, when he's informed that, uh, that uh, Jack, Lemmon Jack Lemmon is a man, uh, so he said, well, nobody's perfect. That's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, although, you know, for, I, I totally agree with you that that was a positive moment. Yeah. Uh, but as a, as a kid, I was, I was born in 1961 and that movie was a little before my time. So I didn't mm-hmm. see it until I was actually in college, but I totally agree that that was, a, you know, a bright spot in an otherwise bleak landscape. Jen, how has your experience as a trans woman influenced your work as, as both an actress and a writer? Um, inextricably linked. I can't separate them. <laughs> and <laughs> I, my, my first, uh, the, the first thing that I had made was a web series that, that I wrote and starred in that was about my experience as a trans woman. Uh, prior to that, um, I always wanted to be a writer and I had done plenty of acting, but coming out as trans and going through that process brought me into a new realm of storytelling. It made new connections for me. It made me think about relationships in a different way. And it exposed me to a world where the stories there weren't really being told yet. So for me, it was kind of discovering this incredible goldmine of untold stories. Well, you say in the film, would I have even known I was trans if I hadn't seen trans people on screen? Do you remember the your well, earliest, uh, the, the, uh, the first time you saw a trans person on screen and were aware that that person was trans? Well, like many of us talk about in the movie, uh, it's particularly for young minds, it's kind of hard to separate gender variance and cross-dressing and transistum and drag and and, and all of that. Uh, However, my earliest memory is the show Soap, and there is a small clip of that in the uh, the film Disclosure where Billy Crystal played someone who, at least at one point, was going to transition and talked about getting a sex change. And I can remember watching Soap with my father when I was just a very, very young child and being captivated by that moment. And that kind of intense captivation and fascination carried throughout my life whenever there was a character who seemed to somehow transgress gender, particularly if it was someone who was assigned male at birth and then took on some kind of feminine decorment. I was definitely fascinated by that, intensely so. Uh, but the question that we raise, I mean, I think that's it's, it's still a legitimate question. It's, transness is... Um, it's complicated. And how would we know if we didn't see those things mirrored outside of ourselves? Uh, I understand Sam is with us now. Hi, Sam. Hello. How are you? Uh, Sam, was the current political environment a factor in why you decided to make this film now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I started making the film five years ago, um, and it was deeply connected to the increase of disability that we were seeing at the time. You know, leading up to then, I've been making films for about 17 years, and there were two documentaries that really changed my relationship to the media, uh, The Celluloid Closet and Ethnic Notions. Celluloid Closet mm-hmm. is about gay and lesbian representation in 
film and ethnic notions is about black people's representation in film. And I always wanted to see what that history would look like for trans people. You know, while I, you know, over these years, I'm teaching, I'm making films, and I was just always curious what that history was like. Uh, fast forward 2014, and trans visibility was increasing. Mainstream society was talking about us more than ever before. But there were two things that were really disconcerting to me about the way the media was insinuating that visibility in itself was the goal for the trans movement and that trans people were somehow something new. Uh, so at that time, I felt really compelled to give trans and non-trans people more context to understand the changes we were witnessing in our culture and to have a sense of the history and how we got to this point of visibility and to foreground the, the idea that the visibility is not in itself the goal, it's a means to an end. So I felt well, there was more to the story that the public was seeing and I wanted to tell that story. And I was surprised by just how many examples you found for this film. And you go back all the way to the early days of cinema with a D.W. Griffith silent film, Judith of Bethulia. Uh, was there a transgender character in, in that film? You know, the Bethulia? way we're looking at this, Bethulia, yes, Judith of Bethulia, um, 1913. That gem was, was brought to me via Susan. We could talk about it a little more. Um, but what, you know, the way I was looking at this history was, you know, and I think it's particular, what's particularly unique about this film is that, you know, a 360 lens into the making and the production on both sides of the camera, this is it's a trans stories, trans stories, trans memories, trans perspectives. You know, it's a trans lens through and through. And, you know, as you look at media and you're thinking about how do these stories influence how I think about myself and how do they influence how the world thinks about me? So that's how we were looking at characters, right? And so in that particular story, this character in the credits is called a eunuch, right? Um, and maybe mm. Susan wants to pick up from there and talk about that particular example. Um, yeah, thanks, Sam. Um, yeah, I had come across the film uh, because, you know, I'm a historian and I'm a filmmaker and I was doing research, you know, my own research on history of trans representation in film. And I came across a mention of that film, Judith of Bethulia, saying that this sequence in the film where you see, you know, the, the you know, patriotic, you know, ancient Israelite woman wanting to defend the city of Jerusalem from this invading uh, army, uh, and the woman, pretend, Judas of Bethulia, pretends to be a concubine uh, who infiltrates the tent of the enemy general Holofernes, and that what she does is she gets him drunk and then she cuts his head off with a sword. Hmm. Um, yes. And that this cut, you know, where like you see the sword come down and then the film cuts and you see the head rolling away, it's like, Apparently, this is the first time in the history of cinema that a filmmaker figured out how to use the cut in the film, the splicing together of the two pieces of film, to actually advance the story rather than it being kind of like a staged, you know, like a filmed stage play, you know, with a very static camera. And so, you know, I went to look at this film and saw that the figure of the eunuch you know, who kind of like is represented as a, uh, a homosexual character who's smitten with the general and feels very um, jealous of the woman, Judith. You know, that, that this figure, the cut figure of the eunuch, the castrated male figure, is actually sort of like circulating all through that scene. And it's like, um, you know, it's like in the invention of the cinematic 
cut, you see it being represented in relationship to the figure of a cut trans body. And that, you know, that seems like maybe it's a little sort of a subtle point to make, but for me it spoke very powerfully to the idea that cinema is a modern way of um, envisioning the world, that it's like cinema is this technology of image making that teaches us to see the world in a particular way, through a particular lens, and from the very moment that that technique exists, it's being created in relationship to a trans body. And so, you know, it's like for me, it's just this great example of how trans representation and cinematic representation literally grow up together. Um, one final well, point, I, have to, I have to tell people that they're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And my guests are three people involved in a new Netflix documentary called Disclosure. Susan Stryker is a historian, Jen Richards, who's a writer and actress, and Sam Fader, who's the director of the film. Uh, you continue, Susan. Uh, yeah, just a, can, a, I, can I also into ask another question along the sure. way? Maybe this will add to what you're talking about. Uh, I suspect that people think that they know the meanings of transgender and cisgender and gender identification and sexual orientation, uh, but they get rather confusing at times. Um, yeah, I, I think they can, and I'm happy to you know, address that or, you know, hand the mic over to, um, to Jen or Sam. Uh, but just the, the quick little point I wanted to make to finish up the thoughts on Judith of Bethulia yeah. and D.W. Griffith is that as, um, as uh, Yance Ford points out in, in the film, it's like D.W. Griffith was a deeply, deeply racist person. And that one of the yeah. other things that happened... He did Birth of a Nation in defense of the South. He did well, and it's like, and is actually that film is actually credited with um, reviving the Ku Klux Klan, right? And so, you know, so this filmmaker who creates a very powerful cinematic language that addresses trans representation is the very same director who uses those techniques to produce a sort of a racist vision of America, and that. You know the the point being that in that that cinema is this very powerful tool for producing mass understandings or representations of both transness and racialization, and that these things have been connected together since the you know the the very earliest days of cinema. Now, Sam, uh, I mentioned cross-dressing, drag. Mm. Uh, uh, you, uh, isn't, wasn't uh, a long tradition of, of live theater of men playing women's roles uh, in drag? Because, I guess, because women weren't allowed to act on the stage, not only uh, in, in much of Europe, but also in Japan. So did that carry over into film when films started uh, being made? Or uh, do we have women, do we not have much cross-dressing at the beginning? Oh, no, we absolutely have cross-dressing at the beginning, and I think there is a carryover. But what I find unique about the way cross-dressing was handled in cinema is that all the examples are mockery of, of femaleness, of femininity, mm -hmm. right? It's, it, it's 
has this very misogynistic lens to it, right? So when you first have these images of these comedians, um, you know, the early images were usually comedians that they would put in a wig, in a dress. It was all about Milton Berle, for example. Right, Milton Berle later on, but like you could put uh. a clip from 1901 of Gilbert Sarony, I think that's how you pronounce his name, probably uh. saying it wrong, um, S-A-R-O-N-Y. Um, he, you know, as early as 1901, he's sitting in the frame and he kisses in a, in a wig and he kisses a man. And it's, it's considered the first on-screen kiss um, because, you know, it's allowed because he's in a wig, but it's a joke, right? And then you, as time goes on, the man in a dress becomes a stand-in for gay men, for homosexuality. And then as time goes on, the man in a dress becomes a stand-in for trans women. So this idea of cross-dressing really has really far uh, reverberations in our culture. How, I'm throwing this out to all of you, how did the real story of Christine Jorgensen, who was a media sensation when she underwent a, a sex change operation in 1952, change people's perceptions, or did they? That would be Susan's. Okay, Susan. Quick, quickly, when, when um, Jorgensen hits the, um, you know, the, the front pages of newspapers around the world, December 1st, 1952, it was a sensation, you know, that that um, editor and publisher magazine in the summer of 1953 said that over the past six months or the previous six months that more words were written about Christine Jorgensen than about any other topic <clears throat> that journalists covered. <clears throat> you know, she was huge. And so uh, initially, um, you know, I, I think people were just fascinated with her as um, an instance of like, gosh, look what technology can do now. You know, remember that this is the age of, you know, atomic bombs and computers and, you know, inter, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And, you know, that there was this post-World War II fascination with technology. And there was definitely this sort of gee whiz sense of like, oh my gosh, science can turn a man into a woman or a woman into a man. And that was definitely part of the um, the, the attraction um, for the Jorgensen well, Was she story. the first transgender woman to have undergone surgery? I assume Absol there must have been more. Not. She was just absolutely the first not. one who was out about it? Right. Well, she was, it seems like there's probably close to about 100 people who had done um, surgical and hormonal uh, so-called sex reassignment by the time Jorgensen came along. So it's it's a little bit of a mystery why her story blew up when previous stories had not. I think it has everything to do with the um, the fact that she was, you know, sort of blonde and beautiful and from the U.S. and you know um, was kind of it was a sort of a moment of of U.S. Uh, sort of global, you know, power and that there was this sort of symbol of Jorgensen as the sort of representative of American technological prowess. I mean, it's a complicated question why Jorgensen. But the thing I would say about Jorgensen is that even though she was a huge media story, uh, she wanted to be in film. She was actually trained as a photographer and filmmaker. Uh, she had tried to break into the Hollywood film industry as a set photographer, a production photographer. She didn't have any success in that. And she tried to parlay her sort of unexpected level of fame into a screen career, and she could not. It's like she was not allowed to be on television. She was, um, you know, never given the opportunity to be in film because even though, you know, she could have a nightclub act, you know, that was considered a little risque. But remember, television in the 1950s was being promoted as a family-friendly medium, 
and uh, she was um, largely, largely kept off the silver screen and the, the small screen in the living room for, uh, for well over a decade. Uh, Sam, in disclosure, you include representations of trans women as psychotic killers in films like Psycho and Dress to Kill, but you also include a clip from Silence of the Lamb where Jodie Foster explains to Anthony Hopkins that there's no link between transgender and homicidal tendencies, although the fact that the killer in that film is transgender would give the opposite impression, or does it simply suggest that uh, she might have been mentally unstable? You know, I think of both Silence of the Lambs and Psycho, you have scenes in the film where someone, you know, in the film says this person is not a trans person. But that's not the takeaway. The takeaway is that this person wants to be the other gender, right? There are people who we see as men, and they're in the film, they want to be women. So that's the takeaway. Um, and then I think, you know, there's a beautiful scene in the film where Jen Richards talks about uh, an experience she had with Silence of the Lambs, which proves this point so well. She talks about how she was telling one of her co-workers that she was going to transition, and her co-worker immediately just looked at her and said, oh, you mean like Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs? It just shows how deep, you know, these images influence our understandings of trans people, regardless of, you know, within the film or not, they say this is a trans person. If you see someone who is tr killing women to skin mm. them and to make a woman's suit, um, that's going to leave a really interesting impression of what you think trans women are. Jen, you want to add to that, Jen, or uh, did he pretty much cover your story? Um, yeah, no, Sam covered it pretty well there. I, I just think it's important to reiterate again, yes, they do specifically say that Buffalo Bill is not a transsexual, but the image is more powerful than that little moment of dialogue. And it plays on these uh, much deeper fears uh, about what trans women do, how they, uh, you know, appropriate the, the female form, how they're these, uh, it's like a dangerous penetration into female spaces. So it, it hangs on all these um you know, kind of deep paranoid about what trans women are. And so that's the image that ends up dominating. Well, they, they either, it seems to me, in thinking about a lot of the films, they're often either criminals or victims. Uh, in Dog Day Afternoon, the motive for a bank robbery is to be able to pay for a sex change operation for the robber's lover. Uh, and then uh, you get all these transgender characters on uh as victims or prostitutes or both on cop shows like Law and Order, CSI, and NYPD Blue. So they're either criminals or victims. And on medical shows, uh, they're people who get cancer from taking hormones. It's true. It's true. All of the tropes, you know, whether it's... Oh, go ahead, Jen. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say Alexandra Billings, uh, who's a wonderful actress who was on a lot of those medical shows, has a great line in the documentary where she says it's not the hormones that kill us. It, it's actually denying us these, these life-saving care that, that kills uh. us. But it becomes a plot point. You know, it's, it's some writer in a room thinks that's a clever idea that, oh, this person transitions and then it's the hormone or it's the one part that they didn't change that ends up killing them. Um, quite often, trans people are just reduced to narrative devices. It's something to shock the audience. It's to find out this person you think is a woman, you know, is really a man or vice versa. Um, these cancers, these victims, it just becomes a joke and a punchline and a narrative device. And I think that's ultimately just reflective that these people don't know any trans people in real life. Because that's the only way that you can reduce 
the entire complexity of a real living person down to a punchline or a joke or a, a, a shocking moment or a narrative device. People is, throwing up in disgust, kind of, for example, that was yeah, a, if, a reaction in a number of films when, when, when uh, people were surprised to learn that someone was trans. And, and that teaches us, that teaches us that that's, I don't want to say an appropriate reaction, but a legitimate reaction, that that's legible to the audience, that, that they can kind of understand that because we've seen that before. I internalized that one deeply. Every time I was on a, a, with a man who I hadn't yet come out to as trans, that's the image that was running through my mind. And it was such a powerful moment in the crime game that the whole marketing of the film was built around that. Stephen Ray vomiting. And then it was. Yeah, exactly. And then it was so powerful that that that, in, it, that trope got picked up in The Naked Gun and Family Guy and Ace Ventura, and then it becomes this kind of ongoing gag that really traumatizes trans people and teaches the world that that's uh, an appropriate reaction to the disclosure of a trans body. Now, we should point out there have been positive representations of trans people in films, generally smaller indie films like the Australian film, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the, Inta the Italian movie, Princesa, or the Belgian film, uh, Ma Vie en Rose. Uh, and recently there have been TV shows like Transparent and Pose that have had more positive portrayals of trans people. Um, so do you see uh, a, a positive trend? I throw this out to all of you. I mean, I absolutely see. <laughs> One at a time. Go ahead. I, I do. Yeah, I do think things are are changing, and I think they're they're changing uh, quickly. I think trans people develop their own voice and uh, really develop their own advoc advocacy to a point that. Oh, that we couldn't be denied that our voices were being heard by the industry. And then also those of us that work in the industry became known by more and more people, more producers and directors and writers, writers. And as they got to know us, I mean, some of those examples you gave, like particularly transparent, I mean, the, the nuance of that portrayal and, and their casting of Alexander Billings and Trace Lissette and Zachary Drucker and Lisa Ernst behind the scenes is reflective of the fact that Jill Soloway had a transparent and it's based on a true story. And once you have trans people in your life, you can't just simply reduce them to that. So as trans people are more common, as we're more visible, as we're speaking out in our own voices with, with greater strength and conviction, the stories are going to change. They're going to become more complicated, more nuanced, and more positive. There's also the matter of casting, uh, because most of the... the uh, there have been many actors who've won or been nominated for Oscars for playing trans characters. Hilary Swank for Boys Don't Cry, Jared Leto for Dallas Buyers Club, Eddie Redmayne for The Danish Girl. Um, now, none of them were trans. Uh, do you uh, think trans actors should be given preference for casting in trans roles? And did, yes. do you think that their portrayals of trans characters were accurate? No. Okay. Susan, you want to take that? I feel like I've, I've talked about that one a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, Jen, Jen makes a great point in the film about how, um, given, as you said, 80% of the general public claims not to know a trans person, gets all their information from mass media representation, that what they're trained to do is to see people they understand to be cis men playing trans women, and that, you know, it kind of creates the perception of, well, that's what a trans woman is. And it's not, you know, it's just not. And so I do think that it actually, the the casting of cis people in trans roles uh, is 
part of something that reproduces stereotypes about what actual real-life trans people are and do in our lives. Um, you know, and I, I think that, that um, you know, I, I do think representation is changing in ways that uh, has a positive dimension to it, that the more stories get away from the, you know, he changed his sex, you know, kind of exclamation point tabloid style representation that focuses on the act of transition is pretty much the only thing that trans people do and that you, you know, and that you see trans people in all walks of life and all stages of their life and in lots of different contexts. It's like, it's, it's like the casting question really kind of like opens up. It's like it allows more kinds of people to represent more kinds of trans people to represent the complexity of trans life on screen. There's and, so much uh, more know, to I, talk I just, about, but I have to take a little break here, unfortunately. Uh, I want to talk about the fact that most of the uh, the trans people we see on screen are women who were men. Uh, we don't see as many in the other direction, although I'm, I'm not sure what the the real life percentages are. And uh, we'll discuss playing trans, uh, but uh, First, I have to take care of a little bit of business. This is WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on BAI, so stay with us. That's uh, pioneering trans performer Jackie Shane performing Any Other Way, a song that became a regional top 10 hit in Toronto in 1962. Uh, now, before I get back to my conversation with the director and subjects of Disclosure, I'd like to take just a few minutes to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We need all of our loyal listeners to step up right now and go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's given then the number two WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or uh, our website is give to WBAI.org. I mentioned earlier that uh, most of the uh, transgender characters we see are uh, men who become women uh, uh the the, the uh, uh is this the case in real life or are the numbers fairly equal jen uh, susan well you know the first thing i would uh, say is you know m most trans people who you know tr trans women wouldn't say i am a man who became a woman it's like mm -hmm. that you've always felt 
that your identity is different than what was assigned to you. And so, um, when you say always, how, when did you realize? Were you very, uh, very as, young? As a child, I've all, mm-hmm. always known myself to be gender different, although it took a while to, to figure that out. So anyway, that was just a little flag on, on, um, culturally competent language. Uh, but, uh, the thing that I, I would say is that yet, as far as we know, the, the figures for male to female versus female to male, trans men versus trans women, uh, is um, is seems to be pretty pretty equal. The representation is not, but the demography is. Generally, you say that when you play a trans character, you don't have to play the transness, but if you say the trans character should be played by trans actors, does that open a whole can of worms? Should trans actors uh, be allowed to play cisgender characters? Because we've had yeah, the gay actors often playing straight characters and vice versa. No, yeah, of course. You know, as as a as a writer and an actor, I I want artistic freedom, and I I think in an ideal world, anyone can play anyone. The issue right now is that we're not in that ideal world, and we're going through a corrective phase right now where. For most of film history, trans people haven't been allowed to participate at all. So this this idea of trans people playing trans characters is is very much a corrective. And it's also rooted in, in something we talked about earlier, which is when we have men specifically playing trans women, it reinforces this idea that trans women are really men. And that leads to violence against actual trans women in real life when because people are, are afraid of what that means for their, their sexuality, et cetera. And, so um, it's a complicated issue. So we, when we call for trans people to play trans parts, it's an economic uh, issue. It, it's getting trans people in the industry. It's um, this political idea that that's about the safety of trans people. It's a, it's a corrective. And I do think there's an aesthetic argument there, too, that trans people can bring a certain amount of nuance and complexity and authenticity to a performance like that that other actors might not be able to. To do so. But the kind of hidden premise of all this, too, is that part of the problem with trans representation, as we said earlier, it's the stories about trans people are often only about transition. The trans person is only there to be trans. And when that's the case, it kind of makes sense for cis people to play those parts. We want to see that transformation. And the only reason they're there is to be trans. But again, as these as these representations get more complex, I'm in several shows on on Blindspot on NBC and Better Things on FX, where my character is never mentioned as trans. To my mind, she is, but it's never once explicitly said. And so the performance isn't about that. Yeah, that no. would just sort of piggyback on that just just quickly. That it's like <clears throat> it's I don't see it so much as like there are trans roles and cis roles. I mean, sometimes a story explicitly involves a trans person. But there's also a lot of opportunity for people who are trans to just play whatever role is available. It's like you wouldn't say there's a role for a secretary or a black secretary. It's just like, well, maybe that secretary just happens to be a black person. And so there's plenty of opportunity for just showing trans people existing in daily life, being cast in a role where it's just like their transness is not central to the story that's being told. That's a, a, a huge opportunity for having more trans actors play roles that are not about their transness. You would think it's, some people would be more understanding, but uh, J.K. Rowling has come under fire for some of her comments on trans people. And in a recent essay, uh, she wrote that in Britain, there are now a lot of women becoming trans men because they don't want to be seen as lesbians. 
I think that's J.P. Rowling's issue. Yeah, that's yeah, her that's, problem. It's just patently false. Yeah, no, it's it's it goes beyond that. that there's there's a real issue in the U.K. right now with this one particular. It's very cult-like, honestly. And J.K. Rowling has has seemed to become kind of indoctrinated in this, where these middle-class, middle-aged white women are kind of creating this this. Um, you know, illusion of, of oppression, and they are foisting all of their issues onto this one particular one um, trans people. And it, and it is very cult-like, and they develop these talking points, none of which stand up to scrutiny, and they become this kind of echo chamber. And and it, it's unfortunate to see someone who has been such a, a beacon of hope and an embracing of diversity and difference, you know, on the page uh, come out uh, in this way. But I, I think the ideology that she's espousing has has been so thoroughly discredited from any by anyone who actually pays close attention to it that it's hard to take too seriously. Many of the real leaders of the gay liberation movement were trans women like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. Have they been largely all but written out of the history uh, and been replaced by white men? Um, they're they're remembered you know of course they're remembered you know but it's like yeah they're they i would say that black trans feminine people in spite of the lip service that they get have largely been you know shunted aside in um at least accessing the benefits of you know gay liberation over the last 50 years one clip is from a show with parents of transgender children in which one of the fathers says um these parents should realize that they have a unicorn, a special brave child. So are you seeing more acceptance and nurturing of, of trans children from parents in schools now than you were when you were growing up? Well, let's begin with you, Sam, since you're the one who included the clip. <laughs> well, I included the clip because Jen told the story. Uh, <laughs> okay, Jen, how about you? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a nice abdication of responsibility there, Sam. Um, <laughs> Yes, I do think I think a lot of the change that we've seen around trans rights has been driven specifically by parents. I think what has happened for, you know, for forever basically is that some kids know that they're trans and they know very early and they speak up about it and the parents have always dismissed that. They've just been like, oh, it's a phase or, oh, that's not what boys do. That's not what girls do. And they kind of push them back into that box. And with the advent of the Internet and social media, I think those same parents now go online and be like, oh, my kid's saying, you know, that he's really a girl or she's whatever the situation is. And what's happening is they're finding other parents and they're finding doctors who are like, yeah, that happens. It's a normal thing. A certain percentage of the population is born this way and that the best way to support those kids is to support them in the gender that they know that they are. To but help you say that your mother refused to call you, Jen, because she said you murdered her son. Have you been able to reconcile yeah, there with that? My mom and I are best friends now, and she always introduces me as her daughter. She even has moments where she says she forgets now that I was ever not her daughter. It's it's weird for her to think that I ever was was different. There was a, a process of grief and uh, acclimation, and but where we are now is better than it ever could have been because I'm more myself now, and our relationship is stronger than it ever could have been. So when, Susan, when what about your family? Hello, Susan. Oh, yeah, I thought you said Sam. Sorry. Oh. Um, I'll get to Sam. Um, my family's been been pretty chill. Um, 
you know, it's like it was uh, when I when I came out to my mom, which is like you know thirty years ago now. Um, you know, she said, you know, I am your dad. You know, who died, you know, relatively young. Said, you know, your dad and I would, you know, would talk about you, and you know, your dad would always say, it's like, there's something going on there, and I wish I knew what it was, and I guess this is it, you know. And so, you know, my uh, my, you know, it's like I wouldn't say my mother completely got it or was always, you know, there was a learning curve there for her. But uh, I feel very uh, fortunate that there was always, you know, as soon as I came out, unconditional love and acceptance. And that is one of the things that proves to be most significant for how well trans people do. I mean, there's a huge amount of, you know, not just misinformation and stigma, but, you know, like, People lose their families, they can't complete their education, they wind up in, you know, sort of gray market or black market kinds of economic activities, they might struggle more with substance abuse, they might get caught up in, you know, the criminal, you know, justice system more easily, and that, you know, it's like, you know, the the, the social challenges that trans people face are really dire. And the single best indicator as to how well trans people do in life is whether or not they've maintained the support of their birth families. And you make the point that surgery is an anticlimax. So is it the least important part of transitioning? Is it the, what happens before or what happens after? You know, not everybody gets surgery. Um, you know that that's not. You know, it's kind of like a uh, a stereotype of being trans is have you had the surgery? And some people do, and some people don't. And for those who do, it's you know usually like it's one step in a path. You know, it's not necessarily like the climax or the culmination of something. And um, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know there's too much too much emphasis placed on the surgery question. Sam, uh, what about your family? Uh, you've called the film Disclosure, I assume that has a, a personal significance as well as an overall significance. You know, I chose the title of the film because what we see again and again in the history of representation is that all of these storylines that point to transness, you know, really come down things, that there's a, a lack of imagination in part of the storytellers, and, and also that they disavow who we say we are, right? And so just the idea of disclosure is about, you know, explaining that you're not who you show up to be. So that's really why the, the, the title came about. Um, in terms of my personal life, um, you know, as I neared 40, which was a while ago now, but as I neared 40 years old, I made some really intentional decisions around keeping people in my life who loved and supported me, and those who didn't, didn't get to be in my life. Now, you also include clips from Arsenio Hall, Katie Couric, and others, uh, in which trans people are asked intrusive questions about their surgeries or how they hide their genitalia. Uh, do those show, shows treat trans people as freaks? I mean, they the wouldn't ask is, a straight man about the details of his prostate surgery or a woman about her hysterectomy. Exactly. I mean, the, the, that, those examples just reinforce the, the objectification that trans people are subject to and the othering and the dehumanization and the, the right that the public feels they have over the trans person's body, which, again, points back to thinking, to assuming we're not who we say we are. And so you have a right to ask questions of us that you would never answer 
We are close to out of time. Uh, I never got to mention Flip Wilson or, um, well, Orange is the New Black, where Laverne Cox is probably the most famous trans performer today, and you served as the executive producer of the film, has become a star. Uh, we all, there's also uh, uh, Tootsie, Mrs. Doubtfire, Yentl. You have lots of clips from, from films over uh, and TV shows over the long history of, uh, of movies and television. It must have been a lot of fun searching for them. It was fun. It was a lot of work. It took years and years and years. Um, and some of it was fun to remember. Some of it was painful. Some of it was funny. Um, and it was a, an incredibly collaborative research experience. And I think one of the biggest takeaways was the seeing all this material and, and seeing the roots of all of these feelings that you kind of walk around with, you know, your, during your life and seeing like, and so often marginalized communities are told they're being too sensitive or they're making something up and basically just being gaslit again and again. And so being able to see one place of, of the birth of so many of these ideologies um, was oddly validating and empowering. And I do hope that's a takeaway for a lot of our trans audience. Although there are often distortions, the film, Boy, uh, Boys Don't Cry was based on a true story about Brandon Tina, a trans man who was raped and murdered, but the film omits a black character who was also murdered. Yeah, yeah. Major part of the yeah. story. Yeah, it's, it's, it tells you so much about the people behind the camera and and you know, it's not unique. You know, you see this happen in a lot of histories. A lot of histories get whitewashed, and that just speaks to the power dynamics of our culture. Well, I have a number of filmmakers uh, on the show today, uh, and I want to thank you all. Sam Fader, the director of Disclosure, currently on Netflix, and writer and actress Jen Richards and historian Susan Stryker. Uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thanks for having me. Nice. Thank you so much. And that pretty much uh, brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview, and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this show and uh, you uh, want to hear more, you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can uh, hear this show stream uh, streaming on demand. At, well, you can hear it uh, as an iTunes podcast. Also, uh, you can find it on uh, my our website, LetItLocateAtLarge.com, where there are links to all of our past shows. And, and don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. Um, if you'd like to reach me directly, uh, to talk about this show or any of our shows or to make proposals, you can send me an email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. And as I mentioned earlier, WBAI is in a very difficult situation right now because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to wbai.org, or give us a call at 516-620-3602 to play your part in keeping community radio for the 99% alive throughout the New York metropolitan area. And please uh, say that you're doing it uh, as uh, 
in support of Leonard Lopate at large. Uh, again, become a, a sustaining member of WBAI Buddy for $10 or more each month. We are off tomorrow, but we hope you can join us again on Monday when Greg Mitchell will discuss his book, The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Have a great holiday weekend.